I do wanna begin the series with this quote. It says, the Psalms have been a primary vehicle for worship. For two millennia, this collection of 150 individual Psalms has helped to shape the public and private worship of Jews and Christians. I am not aware of any other body of religious poetry that has been so influential for so long a period of time and for such a variety of religious communities. That's William Holiday talking about the importance of the Psalms and the role they've played over the last 2,000 years. Even more than that, if you're gonna take them back to being written by David or having something to do with David, these things have been in existence for roughly 3,000 years the prayers that we still look at, the songs that we still sing. If you turn on K-Love or if you listen to Chris Tomlin, you can hear the resonances of the Psalms filling his lyrics. In the songs that we sing, you can hear those ideas that are so ancient, but yet they're so timely for us even today. I wanna ask the question though, why do you think it is, other than what I just said, why do you think the Psalms have played that role in the history of the church? Why have we gained so much from them? I wanna hear from you now. Okay. Good. What I'm picking up from there is they, they give you comfort because of the times when they're saying, this bad thing is happening to me, do something about it. Okay, what else? They teach us how to pray. Nice, yeah, we'll talk about that. They teach us how to pray. What else do they teach us how, what to, how to do? Praise. praise, good. And when we think about praise, what does that look like for us? Question mark there. Yeah, singing, I think I heard. Yeah, that's definitely a, a part of praise is, is our songs. If we were gonna take psalms very literally and how they teach us to praise, we're gonna get uncomfortable. A lot of us are fighting those Baptist tendencies of very like, oh, your love endures forever. <laughs> if you're really moved, your love endures forever. The Psalms though, they, they make bold claims of worshipers. It's a, it's a full body experience. It's you're on your face, you're rolling around. You're like making these noises like la 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 na 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 Sounds like gibberish, right? But like there's these words that talk about making a call to God with these ululations of, of sounds. Oh, your love endures. Like in the, in the ancient world, they'd be like, who's this guy? What's he doing? You know, they, they're like a full body experience. Why else have the Psalms like withstood the test of time? <laughs> One more thing. I know it's out there. I know it's in somebody's mind and they're going to speak it now. They're relevant. Thank you. Relevant. <laughs> I, was, I went out on a limb there, um, and I was really glad that you came through for me. They are relevant, and it's, so, it's such a paradox because they're so old. They talk about sacrificing things. They talk about going to the temple. They talk about things that don't make sense in our world anymore, especially when you think about how we pray and how we praise and how we sing. They don't seem to have much correspondence. I wanna throw out some words that I at least think uh, are attributed to the Psalms here and why they're, they're so important. I think part of it for us is that sense of familiarity. They're like an old friend. Some people, I forget who it was, talks about books as friends, people that you coexist with. And when you really have a bad day, you go live with Charles Dickens for a few minutes or you go live with Ernest Hemingway or you go live with, I don't know, Karen Kingsbury for the Christian Amish fiction fans in the, in the house. 
raise the roof. Like an Amish person would, you get a whole community involved to raise the roof. I lived in Lancaster for a few years. I think that entitles me to, to be able to say that. That's great. Okay, familiarity. When I was growing up, I basically was born and then I was in church service. Mom, how many weeks did it take us for, for me to get to church after I was born, you think? Heathen. <laughs> Two weeks not in the church. It's a wonder that I'm saved today. I'm glad that God worked through that. I was like in the church. I remember there was this lady named uh, Miss Pat. She was my Sunday school teacher and she was crazy. She was like one of those ladies that transcends time. When I was a little kid, it was like, she's got to be 100 years old. She's still got to be 100 years old. But like the cool thing about Miss Pat was she would bring in these props. And I remember one was a donkey that was made of wood and it was covered in carpet and she'd wheel it. It was on wheels and she'd wheel it in and everybody like, I want to ride the donkey. I want to get on the donkey. It was like, we're little Veruca Salt. I want the golden goose now. I wanted to get put on the, the donkey and just have, have them wheel us around the room and everybody be like, yay. The person on the donkey was a rock star for a little bit. She also had this strange thing. I, I know I've told you this before. When we talked about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, they had this um, cardboard structure and kids would stay on the inside and hold these ropes and we'd walk around singing, Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. Right, that story's about genocide, which is strange to talk about with four-year-old children. But at that point, we had our cue and we'd drop the walls and they'd all fall over and be like, yahoo! God is smiting people. <laughs> Miss Pat, though, like was formative in uh, my, my upbringing, my spiritual journey. Like she taught me, in many ways, the, the truth of the gospel from a very young age. I remember stuff like this, like little coloring projects with shepherd boy David and talking about the Psalms and the things that he would, he would write and he'd like play a harp and thought that was really neat. Like I remember that just being something that's so familiar and it's just been a part of, of my life. I wish it's been a, a bigger part of my life, but like the, the Bible and the Old Testament and the Psalms have just always, have always been there. I've never really been that guy that in the midst of struggle would go and, and read the Bible in that way for comfort, but it just seems like it's so, it's just right there for you. Um, and you can hear and you can place yourself in those stories. So like this is familiarity for, for some of us, it might be more so than others. For some of you, this is very new. This might be your first time ever in a church, which is great, but the Psalms haven't been those things that have been in your back pocket for quite some time. Also the content has made the Psalms kind of transcend time and placement. Um, Martin Luther said that the Psalms are basically like a little Bible. And if you can't read the whole Bible, just read the Psalms because that's all you need. Strange, isn't it? Who's absent from the Psalms? Pretty big deal. So I've heard. Um, but there's traces of redemption and there's foreshadowing of what Jesus would go through and what he would do. I can't wait for, I think we'll do this on Palm Sunday, maybe Easter Sunday, but like Psalm 22 and Jesus's cry on, on the cross. They're just so pregnant with meaning. I also remember this book here. One of the first Bibles I got was a Precious Moments Bible. I'm really talking a lot of kitschy Christianese for some people, but like that Precious Moments Bible. Does anybody remember Precious Moments? There's those little ceramic things that you get for certain events. Like Mark, when you graduate from college, I'll get you a ceramic 
precious moments. And it'll have like a little, it'll be like a little doll and have a little hat and be like, hey. They try to emphasize grace by showing things like band-aids and like you fall on your knees and it's precious, precious, it's a precious moment. But I also remember getting one of these books. The Gideons would show up. The Gideons are uh, an organization that gives out Bibles. If you've ever been to a hotel, they put the Bible there. They're everywhere. They're omnipresent. Not really, but they're in a lot of places. And I remember getting this little orange King James New Testament that oddly had Psalms and Proverbs in the back. And I think there's kind of a statement there in, in the Christian community saying, you need to know about Jesus, but you also need these Psalms They're rich and they're beautiful and they're something that's gonna get you through those times. The Psalms are also known for their artistry. If you think about the Hebrew text, when we think about poetry, what defines poetry? What? Rhyming Rhyming is important, what else? Verse, Verse, what else? Rhythm or starts with an M meter, sure. And those of us fortunate enough to have good English teachers would learn about like, yeah, okay, metaphors. And immediately I think of, no, I think of similes because my English teacher would always say, your love is like a red, red rose. And that was her big go-to, like simile. That was just for Laura because we had the same English teacher. Okay, but here you can see in Hebrew, it wasn't necessarily rhyme. It wasn't necessarily meter. All those, those things were involved. Here you can just see how the page is, is organized. What do you notice about this page? You guys don't know Hebrew, but you can tell me one thing. Structure, how's it structured? What's over here? Well, yeah, it's right to left, yes, but what is this? It's all the same. For his chesed, his steadfastness, his commitment, his ongoing love, it's forever, olam. It just keeps going and going and going and going. We sang that, didn't we? Your love endures forever. It's just in Psalm, this is Psalm 136. It'll give a a clause and then it'll have a refrain attached to it. For your love or for your, your steadfast love or your commitment endures forever. It just keeps going and going and going and going. You can see the structure here. It's, it's beautiful. Psalm 119 is what's called an acrostic poem where each paragraph begins with the same letter and it goes through the Hebrew alphabet beginning with Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, so on and so forth, where each line begins with the corresponding letter. I see eyes glazing over all over the room like, what, what is happening? Acrostic poems, Hebrew letters. Ah! Stay with me. Maybe this will make some connections for you. It's one of my favorite poems of all time. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. And interpret, talk amongst yourselves. No, don't, talk to me. Like, what do you, what do you get from this poem? <laughs> yes, thank you. What do you learn? What do you know? What does this tell you? Say it again. Transportation? Are you going to jump in the wheelbarrow? Okay. <laughs> you need somebody to push you too. Uh, okay. What else? What else about this poem sticks out to you? It's not a farm. Okay. We like farms. What else? Hmm. Okay. Dory's out. Made her mind go blank. <laughs> For, and for some of us, it's like that. You see a piece of art and you're like, what is happening? Uh, I remember going to the Philadelphia Museum of Modern Art and you walked into the, the modern section and it's like there was a urinal on the wall. And I was like, that's weird. Oh, I guess that's art. And it had a little, a little plaque there and it was a statement on 
bathrooms, I guess. Artistic <laughs> statement on that. Like here, it seems as though there's all sorts of ambiguity, right? Because we don't know anything about this farm. We don't know anything about this wheelbarrow. We don't know anything about the, the chickens, the rainwater. This is really ridiculous. I understand that. But like, you can, in a sense, interpret how you interpret and place yourself in the narrative of the poem. Throughout the Psalms, it's like there's this I, or there's this you, or there's this we. It doesn't really go into detail about who that is. And as you read it, you're like sucked into it. And you become the voice of the poem. It brings you in. It allows you to see meaning that might have escaped you before. We also note the Psalms for their function. Uh, the Psalms were used primarily in worship. They were used in a setting like this where you would come in and you would read Psalms. Even today, they're still used in that way. In a liturgical church, you'll oftentimes have responsive readings with Psalms or you'll uh, incorporate the Psalms throughout the course of a, of a Sunday service. The Psalms are rooted in in worship. Uh, we also see that the Psalms are for instruction. Kate said it a few minutes ago, the Psalms teach us how to pray. They teach us how to praise. They teach us how, in a sense, to live. They teach us what to believe about God, who to become, who to be, who to follow. They teach us how to live life. And when we see it in that way, they become, they become rich. The Psalms are also authentic. I think Laura was hinting at this when she sees like that raw emotion on the Psalmist's pen and tongue when they announce to God, where are you? What are you doing? What about all these promises? You said you were gonna be here for us, you're not. Show up, do something, arise, deliver. Like with, within the Psalms, you see these commands of the people saying, do something. They're authentic in how they correspond with God and a lot of times we're not so authentic in how we correspond with God. It's like there's this infinite amount of eggshells that we just try to tiptoe around and we keep all those private things that we think God won't like to ourselves. We hold on to them, we don't say them, we just kind of tiptoe around it and say, thanks for the food, it's so good. Thank you for my life, it's so good. Thank you for all you do, thank you for this and that. And like meanwhile, you're like in a, in a mess, like, but you can't announce that. And a lot of times this authenticity that we see in the Psalms, we import ourselves into it because we don't have the courage to do that ourselves. Tonight, I wanna take some of those ideas and look at the Psalms as a collection. For the over 30 crowd in the room, you might remember these things. They're called audio cassettes. We used to put music on them. I remember I used to sit, that was, that was kind of uh, demeaning, I apologize. I remember there was either a top five at five on 101.7 KISS FM back in the day, or a top seven at seven, and I remember not owning real tapes, so I'd have blank tapes and I'd have a little tape player and you'd just like sit by the radio and you'd wait for the song to come on and you'd like time it perfectly, start it, and then you'd time it perfectly, you'd stop it. I saw a meme somewhere this past week about how a DJ wrecked your tape because they'd come on at the end and say, that one goes out to Delilah from Samson. <laughs> Biblical example, thank you, Jake. Um, but here you would, you would try to get those songs taped. If you were really high tech though, you'd have one of those dual cassette decks. So you'd have your CNC Music Factory on one side and then you'd record it because you wanted to have like a, a pre-game a pre pump yourself up sort of thing. This was before Jock Jam. So you'd put your own songs on there for certain 
certain moment. Okay? This wasn't me because I was too young, but I, I, I remember making tapes like this. But if I was going to make a mixtape, it was on CD, and this is how I wooed the ladies back in the day. If you wanted to woo a lady back in the day, you would make a really fine mix CD with all your favorite slow jams <laughs> to kind of put the insinuation in there that I'd like to dance with you. I don't know. We didn't do dances at that point. But like still, you'd kind of you'd put it out there, and you'd kind of hope maybe she'll think, of me, or maybe, I don't know, you kind of, you tried to get something going with, with mixed CDs. Now we've advanced beyond that and we have playlists. I don't know if people like make playlists and say, baby, I just need you to check out this playlist that I made you. And you just walk away. Does that happen? Only in my mind? Okay. Um, I did like this one in particular though because it takes the over 30s back to their day. And this is how we do it. Okay, Montel. So we see, sorry, we see um, creating mixtapes, creating these playlists, and the Psalms could be viewed as a collection or as a mixtape or as a playlist where there's all these different things coming together to form one thing. The Psalms are 150 individual Psalms that have been gathered and collected to make one book. Their origins come from different places, but they've all been brought together in this one mashup mixtape or playlist. It might even be better to go one step farther and, and view the Psalms as a collection of collections or a mixtape of mixtapes or a playlist of playlists. So here, going back to my Spotify playlist diagram, you can see off to the side here, there's a lot of different playlists. This one is called Woman Power. This one is called 70s Soul Funk Groove, I would imagine. This one is called Pioneers of Music. Imagine taking all of those three different playlists, which are very different, and then bringing them all into one collection and then shuffling them. So in one take, you'll get Montel Jordan. In another take, you'll get Girls Just Want to Have Fun. In another take, you'll get Cool in the Gang. In another take, you'll get, I mean, you have all these different songs that don't seemingly go together, but they've been compiled into one thing to create what we now have as the Psalms. Walter Brueggemann says the faith of Israel, like all human experience, moved back and forth between the polar moods of, on the one hand, deep anguish and misery, and on the other hand, profound joy and celebration. Within this mix, you have all sorts of different things being brought together, which tell us something. It gives us a picture of something that's, that's real life. Psalm 1, we'll be looking at Psalm 1 and then comparing it with a couple other ones. If you have a Bible, you can flip there. There should be some in the pew in front of you. Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Some people make that play on they don't walk, they don't stand, they don't sit as though there's some progression in levels of how much they interact with these folks. So not only are they not walking, they're definitely not standing, they're definitely not sitting. But this person's delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. When we think about meditation, we think about like taking whatever you have in your brain and removing it. We think about ceasing to think. In the Psalms, this meditation was very literally a, a mumbling. It was you were chewing on the text, you were, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. It was just over and over. You just keep 
calling this to yourself, saying it. It wasn't, it wasn't an emptying of the mind. It was a wrestling with the words in front of you on the page. This person, their delights in the law of the Lord. Further in verse three, he is like a tree planted by water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. This person is not one who engages with the wicked. He delights in the law of the Lord. They meditate on it day and night. And as a result, they're like this tree that's planted by streams of water. It's always flourishing, it's always growing, it's always being fruitful in its time. This is a great image to begin the book of Psalms and some people would say that this, if we're thinking about like the playlist, has been intentionally placed in the very beginning to give us this framework from which to understand all of life, all of singing, all of praying, all of belief, it's like that that baseline belief that Israel had, if I'm righteous, if I follow, if I meditate, if I do this, I'll be, pro- I'll be prosperous. I'll be okay. I'll be like planted by a stream of water. It goes on to contrast this with the, the, the wicked person. It says, not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This verb here is like this, a knowing and acknowledging. He's cognizant and he's acting upon it for Yahweh knows, understands, acknowledges the way of the righteous. It's almost like he's tipping his hat to him. It's gonna be okay, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is almost what frames Israel's entire theology. Be good, get good, be bad, get bad. It's called retributive theology where if you do good, you'll receive good. You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. You'll be okay because God knows and acknowledges the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, he's gonna destroy. This image, as you can tell, is completely different. This tree has no leaves. This tree is not by streams of water. This tree is not in the lush green setting. This tree has no chance of bearing fruit, probably. Sometimes life does not work like Psalm 1. Sometimes life does not play out the way that you think it will. Remember, as Brueggemann says, there's these extreme joy tethered by depression, sadness, trial, struggle. For example, two chapters later, remember this is, our, this is our playlist. It begins with this great, deep, rooted theology of the good get good, the bad get bad. God is for the righteous, he's with the righteous, their way will prosper, the not so the wicked. Two chapters later in Psalm three, that theology is kind of turned on its head where it says, Yahweh, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, there is no help for you in God. The situation that's underlying this is problem, it's trouble, it's struggle, it's oppression, it's fill in the blank with whatever. It could be physical sickness, it could be literal 
foes and enemies that are surrounding this person. In Psalm 4, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Listen to my words, Yahweh. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Why, Yahweh, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Throughout the Psalms, we have this theology that frames everything, but then real life hits and it just doesn't seem to match up. Remember this thing where you said that you'd be with me, you'd acknowledge my way, you'd you'd support me and the wicked wouldn't get it? Well, what's going on here? And then you have all these different scenarios where God doesn't seem to be doing his end of the bargain. Your belief does not look like or add up to your experience. And a lot of times for many of us in this room, that's where we live. The things that we believe, the things that we hold on to, the things that we hope for doesn't seem to work out in real life. We still go to the hospital room. We still wait for healing. We still go to those funerals. We still have parents that have just completely severed their relationship. We might be in the midst of our own relationship that's broken. We might be in the midst of doubt and struggle and temptation and fill in the blank with all these things where it doesn't seem like this belief of God being for the righteous actually happens in real life. The two things don't seem to go together. Which is why it's important for us to see the Psalms as this beautiful dialogue, not just a fake dialogue, but a real, honest, raw dialogue where somebody can say, God, I know you're for the righteous. I know you'll be with me. And that helps in those moments when you're crying out saying, where are you? I got enemies all around me. I've got things piling up and you're nowhere to be found. So many students, so many people that I know, that's their prayer is, I kept crying out, I kept calling out, and God never showed up. Their belief and their experience did not go together in their mind. And the Psalms is allowing us to see what this looks like, not when you give up, not when you say, forget you, God, I'm out of here, not when you say, I've had enough, you don't do what you say you're gonna do, I'm leaving, but when you are in the midst of those times and you say, I'm gonna hold on here because at the end of all the Psalms that I read, it's got that turn back to trust where they say, yet I will trust you. But do what you said you're going to do. There's this real, honest, raw dialogue where people are announcing to God, help. The question that I think this brings to my mind is, in that moment of real, honest dialogue that you have with God, if you had an audience with him and you actually believed that he heard you, what would you say? I doubt it would be the normal pleasantries of, thanks for this day. Thanks for this sandwich. Please bless it to my body, even though it's from McDonald's and it will certainly kill me at some point. (laughs) You know, it's like, what, what, what are the things that you don't even want to admit that you think that you need to actually sound out and voice to God? What are the laments? What are those cries that you have? Take 10 seconds and in the quietness of this room, think through that. You might be in a, in a situation of life where everything is good and, and your prayer would be filled with praise and thanksgiving and that's awesome, but you might also be in the room where you're so bitter and you're so jaded that you can't even bring yourself to say two words to that guy because in your mind, he's the one that keeps hurting you. 
think for 10 seconds about the things that you would think and the things that you would say to God. I hope that even now you're beginning to, to be honest with who you are, with where you are, with what you're doing. The call throughout the New Testament as we go beyond the Psalms is when Jesus showed up, the people that he railed on were people that looked a lot like us, the religious folk that just kind of existed in that comfortable middle, the people that didn't really give everything that they had when he just kept saying over and over, I want everything. And we have so much stuff that we don't want to give him and we just hold it. Throughout the Psalms, we see this, this movement of praise and lament, those times when God doesn't seem to be holding up his end of the bargain. And then finally, we do get to this moment of thanksgiving where people retell the story of lament. I was in the pit, I called out to you, and you answered me. I was sick, I needed forgiveness. I asked, and you heard me, and you did something about it. Those are the voices within the community that we have got to hear because some of you are sitting there near giving up because you haven't seen it, you haven't felt it, you haven't experienced it. My prayer is that you keep hanging on because if we're gonna believe this text that we have, this scripture, that's God-breathed, it's inspired, that God's gonna do something. It doesn't mean that every situation is gonna get taken care of the way that you think, but it means that he's going to act. When you call and say, arise, deliver, do something, we have to believe as Christians that that will take place. Brueggemann calls this a movement from orientation where you have like that Psalm 1. God takes the righteous and he keeps them and he helps them to prosper and he's with them and the, the wicked not so. And then you move into disorientation where life doesn't seem to match up to that. Your situations, your surroundings, your circumstances, they don't look like that at all. But there's this movement that must take place in some way, in some form, where you move beyond that lament to God answering you, God being with you, God showing up. At the heart of the Psalms is this idea of, of movement where Hopefully, we can dip in and pray those lament psalms, and we'll do some of that. But hopefully, we can also move beyond that at some point. The things that just put us in chains, the, forgive, the forgiveness that we're not allowing ourselves to give to other people, the things that we can't get past, the things that we're holding God accountable for, all those things, hopefully they slip away when we understand that he's not against you, that he's for you. When we sing things like, our God is fighting for us always, all the time, we begin to believe that. We begin to move beyond lament. We begin to move beyond doubt. We begin to move beyond skepticism into this new orientation where we understand God in a different way. For us Christians, that's rooted in the cross. It's rooted in Jesus's work. For some of us in this room, like we're skeptical towards that because we can't accept something that's free because we don't think that it happens because we don't believe this or that or the other thing. I think that's okay. Tonight, what I want to have lodged in your head is hope. That the things that you have thought, the things that you've experienced, the things that you've 
based your whole theology on, perhaps, perhaps those things are wrong. And perhaps God is waiting, God is hoping that through real, honest, vulnerable dialogue with him, where you verbalize those things that you can't verbalize to many other people, there'll begin to be movement, that your situation will begin to change, perhaps, hopefully, for some people. But through the power of Jesus, lives can be changed. We call ourselves the Restoration Project. We base our whole theology on the fact that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is restoring people, period. I hope that our lives give testimony to that. I hope that we feel it, that we experience it. I hope that we have these moments in life where you can look back and say, I know that he fights for me. And in the meantime, I'm gonna ask that he arise and that he deliver and that he do something. I sincerely pray that that little bit of hope just get lodged into your heads and your hearts so that you don't walk away, that you don't give up, and you just wait expectantly for Jesus to do something for you.